welcome. Welcome to season two, episode two of the Doc Talk podcast. I'm Amy Andrus, the executive director of Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals, and with me is my best friend and my co-pilot, Captain Jeff Monroe. Hi, Amy. How are you? And uh, I'm Jeff Monroe. I'm the uh, uh, director of education and standards. Uh, for the International Association of Maritime and Port Executives. And uh, we do the professional certification for a lot of folks in the port industry worldwide. And we've had a great relationship with uh, IRPT, which has been fabulous. And very pleased with that. And I think uh, in 2023, we had 2,600 people certified and trained worldwide, which was wonderful. Good portion of those being your people, Amy. So. That's amazing, Jeff. Thank you so much for your service to our industry. Um, so for our listeners, um, you know, joining us on the podcast today, again, this is season two. Uh, with each season, um, quite literally, comes new challenges and new opportunities for growth. And so, um, you know, let's let's jump right into it. So here we are, you know, kind of experiencing a little bit of low water or um, drought issues that may be impacting commercial navigation on our river system. And I know you have a lot of thoughts about that, Captain. So, you know, let's jump into some of that. Um, yeah. I know that we've had a pretty dry, rainy season. Um, we're really hoping and fingers crossed that we're going to have significant snowpack uh, in the mountains up north um, that will contribute once that melts into a robust um, flow on our river system. I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, as we come into the spring and everything, we're going to see a, a lot more flow on the river system. I think the, the big issue is that the primary choke points are not the river system, but where the river system connects to and, and to your gateway facilities and stuff and gateway ports such as New Orleans and stuff. Um, and the big issue now, of course, is that there's very low water and that continues to be a problem in the Panama Canal. Uh, they've had a number of ship delays. They've reduced the uh, the draft on the vessels going through, um, and uh, considerably, you know, you know, uh, eight to six, uh, six to eight feet uh, overall. Um, don't have the same problems with the Suez Canal, obviously, because it's a sea level canal. Um, and in Panama, what's been happening is that the the older lock system in Catoon Lake is fed by lakes that are surrounding the outside uh, of uh, the canal. And those have been running very dry. And so they're not getting enough water in Gatun Lake and stuff like that. Of course, the new locks down there have got a recovery system where they take the water out and then put it back in and stuff. So um, we're hoping that that's gonna get better and we're hoping that's gonna be a little bit more of an issue. The issue, now what has happened because of the Western issues, you know, with the Western ports and the congestion and labor issues and stuff, um, a lot of folks shifted over to the um, Suez Canal, where there's no problem because it is a sea level canal. Uh, the problem over there is that uh, the ships are getting shot at. Um, and uh, what's been going on here is that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of concern about uh, this whole thing with, with Gaza and um, with the Gaza Strip and everything. And of course, um, the Houthi uh, rebels have been shooting at commercial vessels, you know not even caring if they're going to Israel or not. Uh, and several of the lines have suspended service. So that's creating a choke point. Now, the U.S. Navy, along with a lot of other coalitions, have put up 
a uh, whole system of uh, protections in there to kind of push back against that to protect the vessels going through. But, you know, we see we see these congestion points in various locations. They exist. Suez Canal, Cape of Good Hope, English Channel, uh, you know, Panama Canal. These have existed at all times, even the Malacca Straits. But now this is this is something unusual. We had problems in the past with Hormuz, the Straits of Hormuz. Now we're seeing this problem, and this is a much bigger shipping route. Thirty percent of the container trade in the world goes through there, and over twelve percent of the trade is going through the Suez Canal. So you, now you're looking at a major potential chunk point, and that's going to have a big, big ripple effect. Uh, and the ripple effect is going to affect your folks, Amy, uh, because. The bottom line is a lot of the export that you're handling, you know, is all bulk export and everything. And what's going to wind up happening is anything that's heading, you know, outbound into places like Asia and stuff like that, they're either going to be stuck going through this canal and that's going to be an issue, or they're going to get stuck going through the Panama Canal because of the low water. They've got ships waiting there, 25, 30 ships a day waiting to get through. Uh, and so that's going to create a big problem. So that's going to have a ripple effect on your system. So let's talk about that because there's been so many articles. I've been contacted so so much um, to contribute or provide a quote for, you know, so so many different articles in the mainstream media about the impacts of the drought and the low water and what that actually means for, you know, the agriculture community. And there is an impact to it. But but I think what is most important is that we take that step back and we say, you know, we've been dealing with high and low water for years, for decades, right? There is a constant fluctuation of, of the river levels. And what has remained steady is that we have always been reliable and sustainable. So whereas we may have to reduce our draft, and let's talk about, let's break down some of the economics in this. So if we have to reduce our draft maybe by a foot in the barge so that we can transit you know, the, the lower water uh, the lower level of river, right? That means that the cost to ship the goods goes up, maybe not significantly, but it does go up. It does impact the farmers. The farmers are, you know, trading and selling and, and whatnot on the free market. And, and transportation is a cost that, of, of doing business. It's one of the biggest line items they have. It's transportation from farm to market. So then we... We combine that with the draft issues in the Panama Canal or the safety issues and the liability going through the Suez Canal with the Houthis and the rebels, et cetera. So, so can, you, can you break down the economics of what the, what the real impact really is for our agriculture community, our farmers, and the supply of fertilizers and other commodities going out? Well, as you know, Amy, uh, you know, uh, only 10% of the cargo uh, that's handled uh, is international cargo out of North America, uh, the rest being domestic cargo. So it's not going to affect overall the domestic moves. You know, it, it will affect the, some of the river system. But the one thing that is very adaptable with your river system is that you, you all stockpile things. Uh, and that works out pretty well from the port for domestic utilization. This whole issue that we're facing with um, what's going on in the Suez Canal and Panama Canal, you know, and the Red Sea is is universally impacting all the transportation systems. So it's affecting the rail, 
right? It is affecting, obviously, the truck traffic, though less of it is used, utilized with bulk cargoes, and it's certainly affecting the river system. So everything we're shipping out, whether it's containers, whether it's automobiles, whatever, that are dependent on those choke points on, on going through the Suez and Panama Canal are going to be impacted. So it's going to add cost to all the modes of transportation. The question is, how much is that going to add? And that's that's pure speculation at this point. Uh, you know, we do recognize that it's going to be more expensive. There's no question about it. And, you know, once uh, it's stabilized in the Red Sea, you know, that trade will come back in play. And as you know, a lot of the cargo that is exported, the bulk cargo that's exported to Asia does go through the Suez Canal, you know. And so uh, that that's going to be paramount for, for impacts on your ports and on your river system and stuff. And it's particularly been unique recently because um, we're handling much more export of of DDGs and we're handling more export of legumes and soy and stuff uh, because of what's been happening over in Ukraine. Uh, and of course, we're the largest exporter of oil in the world right now. Uh, tremendous amount of oil being produced and that's, you know, outbound. But we're also, we've got oil inbound as well because a lot of our refineries not set up for the loading. So your question was, you know, what's the economic impact going to be? We don't know. You know, we really don't know because this is a, a little bit new field for us and stuff. Uh, we recognize that ship delays and in either location uh, create a problem and add extra costs, which in most cases, the lines are absorbing the cost unless you're in the charter operations, which is a lot of what, what your folks are doing. Right. But with the container trade, they're not they, they some of the lines have just stopped going through. You know, they're going like, you know, we're not going to put our ships in harm's way, you know. And so as a result of that, you know, now what's it cost to add 22 days to go around the Cape of Good Hope and put that in there? But those are fixed contracts as well. So who's going to absorb that? Most likely the lines. So I want to ask you to shift gears here and really think about, um, again, the agriculture community, the exporters of the United States, and this low water issue that we have. One of the, the big goals for, for the IRPT Association is advocacy and educating our lawmakers on the impact of certain situations and circumstances. And, and what they do in Congress um, can really affect and impact the way we do business. So here's what I want to ask you, Captain, is, is there anything that Congress can do in times of low water or drought conditions where we are reducing the draft, we're increasing the transportation cost, what can Congress do, if anything, to help alleviate that burden or lessen the burden on the exporter? Well, I think there's a twofold thing here. Um, I think the first one, obviously, is, is the more uh, mm -hmm. obvious one, and that's the investment in infrastructure. You know, while you have uh, the river systems doing what they're doing and you have low flows and all the rest of it, um, you find yourself in a position now where you can really invest uh, in your infrastructure, which is a lot of what the what the coastal ports are doing right now uh, because they've got decreased volumes going through. So they're investing in their infrastructure. But, you know, Amy, I have I have been a constant beater of the drum in regards to a contiguous policy that really incorporates all modes of transportation, including the inland river system. So, you know, you're lucky with the uh, Port Infrastructure Development Program that you got 20%, you know, of those funds that are available or designated for the smaller ports and the western river ports and stuff. But, you know, what's going to happen in 2024? 
right? You know, there are so many demands right now and the deficit is getting such that investment needs to be consistent. And that's part of a national policy that takes into account all aspects of transportation, right? So it really has to look at the river system as well as the coastal system, as well as rail truck and everything else and say, here's where we're going we're gonna to put our funds and here's where we're going to do it consistently. You're right. So, so you do continuously beat that drum, and I will, I will be right there by your side um, in the marching band. But let's take this away because we had a trillion-dollar infrastructure uh, package that was signed. So, landside investment. There is um, in 2022 through 21 through 26 uh, sustainable long-term investment where the, through the infrastructure plan. You know, say, for example, the Port Infrastructure Development Program um, has a continuous $450 million in the bucket each year until 2026. So there's that long-term strategy. However, what, what was not included, I don't believe, in that, in that infrastructure, that trillion-dollar infrastructure package, was long-term funding for the Army Corps of Engineers. And that can really impact the way that transportation um, works, right? when we talk about operating and maintaining our river system, the bipartisan infrastructure law um, put a huge amount of funding into capital investment into some of the locks, the dams, um, the, the, the dredging, etc. But now we must really look at this from a long-term perspective aspect that says, okay, we've got this new capital investment. Now we must maintain that. So um, I applaud you for thinking about that long-term um, capital strategy and applaud the administration for um, including um, so much infrastructure investment landside, but we must also give that same consideration to the actual river as well, to the Army Corps of, Corps of Engineers that operates and maintains that. Well, I think that the biggest issue we're facing, and, and you know as well as I do, Amy, that you know, the money that the Army Corps does get, they use pretty effectively, you know, for what they can do. What the big problem is, is that it takes so long to go through the permitting process, you know. So you've got a federal agency now dealing with another federal agency is going through a permitting process. And the permitting process is so long and so complex, right? It takes so much time that, you know, if you get $10 million for a project, you know, by the time the project is actually released and you're able to start construction, all right, the cost of the project has gone up because we're not talking about weeks or months. We're talking about years before the permits are issued. And there's got to be a way to slim down the permitting process without adversely impacting the environment. Nobody wants to mess up the environment, right? But on the other hand, you know, why does it take so long? And that's so part of a national policy. So, and I, I am unfamiliar on if there are firms or um, corporations that can help some of the ports or the terminals going through the permitting process. So without naming names, are you aware of resources available um, to, to transportation providers that are looking at, you know, going through that permitting process? Well, I'll, I'll tell you without getting into names and stuff like that, I, I generally universally hear from all the people uh, that, you know, like have taken the program, the consulting firms and stuff that we've worked with who specialized in permitting and everything. And I think the overall perspective is it is what it is. You just got to go through it because you're really, really hanging on 
what the permitting process is about. And, and I'm going to give you a great example. As you know, I used to run the, the Portland Airport as well as the, the, the seaport and, you know, the intermodal facilities up in Portland. And um, I remember getting a letter before I took the position up there, getting a letter from the FAA saying, you know, you have a problem with the runway, it has to be made longer, I'm going to give you a letter, you know, if you don't do something, it's going to affect your 105 certificate, et cetera, et cetera. So I went to, we went to the state, went to the EPA, we presented them, you know, and talked to them. And I says, how long is it going to take us to get these basic permits? And they said, six months. I says, great. I says, and I knew we had to go faster. So I pulled up my letter and I handed it to them and they read it with great interest. And they says, well, I think we can slim this down to 180 days. You know, so, so the reality is in all of this is that I recognize that they have to exist and they have to do what is necessary, what's laid out in the law and the processes and everything like that. But, you know, we're not paying attention to this. You know, it's not just a question of ask for more money. It's a question of ask for more money and utilize it effectively. And one of the most expensive things is just getting through the permitting. And the only ones who benefit from this oddly enough, are the people who are, are consultants who are dealing with the permitting, you know, because, you know, it is what it is. We're going to go through the process and get it done. So let's change the world, Jeff. That's what we're doing here, right? We're, 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 our, one of our goals is we're going to make this happen. So we've uh, identified, you know, a problem in, um, you know, maybe the, the low water, the drought issues, and, and we're looking at potential solutions. What can Congress do to help? We've identified a second problem, which is the, the lengthy permitting process. So I'm going to ask you um, for a solution. What can Congress do to help? Are we looking at permit reform? Well, I think it's not just permitting, Amy. It's permitting. It's consistent funding. It's looking at the actual issues. And it's providing uh, access for the shippers so it's to their advantage. I mean, look, we live on the services that we provide, whether it's in the ports or whether it's in the accountant carriers or whatever. So a comprehensive policy does not just look at one aspect. It doesn't look at the rail, it doesn't look at the road, doesn't look at the waterways, doesn't look at the environmental, doesn't look at the permitting, all in isolated silos, right? It looks at it all comprehensively. And we keep, we keep throwing these ideas, well, let's create a task force here, or let's do something here. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you on the Inland River System have been beating the drum for the Inland River System, and people go, oh, yeah, we're glad, you know, yeah, we've heard of the Mississippi River, you know. But the bottom line here is that it really needs to incorporate all of it. Are there things we can do to improve the waterways? Well, certainly there are things we can do to improve flood control, you know, and Mother Nature is Mother Nature. But the question becomes, can the shippers effectively and cost efficiently get their cargo out? And do they have alternatives? And there is a means of uh, coordination at the federal level that says, okay, you know, we need to look at this right now, or we need to fix this. Your locks, for example, how long does it take to get your locks fixed? All right. And you look at the aspect, they'll start into the process. They'll spend all this time permitting. And by the time they actually go to fix the lock, Right. They only have enough money to do half the job. All right. And that has been consistent back and forth. So I think certainly those are the type of things. But we as a nation do not pay attention to our transportation system. And as I and I say in my courses, last time we had a comprehensive system in place, Harry Truman was president and neither one of us was born then, you know, when he was president. So which is a good thing. <laughs> means we're not that old. 
Well, I'm excited for the year 2024 where we can get out and, and beat our drum um, a little bit louder and a little bit further than we have in the past. I'm, I'm grateful to have you as a partner in that. I'm grateful to all of the IRPT members all across this nation that are supporting you know, our association, providing those legislative solutions uh, and more. So um, as you know, IRPT is getting ready to start our spring round of basin meetings. Um, we have 11 different river basins that we serve. Uh, and so we'll be gathering all of our members together in each of the basins to talk about some of these uh, challenges, but more importantly, to collaborate on those solutions. So I'm excited to, to get that started. I also know that you're very ex excited to get your 2024 classes started. So you want to maybe hit on one of the one or two of the, the first couple coming up? Yeah, I found what's been interesting about our course programs is that there's a lot more, a lot younger people coming into it, you know, your generation more than my generation, you know, and uh, I think what's been interesting is that uh, we're seeing more people who are now becoming more skilled in dealing with port issues, learning about the port issues. So, you know, we've got courses coming up in the British Virgin Islands, in Norfolk, in New Orleans, which uh, is, is a combination course of both inland and coastal. Uh, we're looking at uh, Long Beach uh, and several other places uh, during, uh, during uh, the spring and summer and fall. So um, I think in the long run here, one of the things that it is paramount is getting people to understand how to communicate with their legislators, right? And so, for example, one of the things you do is you do your educational programs where you invite them in, right? But, you know, sometimes all they get is that, that little piece, right? Or they get, you know, they're dealing with a hundred other issues. Our prospect is here, you know, I would love to see legislative people take, you know, even the first couple of days of the program to understand what the industry is about, right? Because then the staffs are going to, once are going to shape things, you know, and we meet with people all the time. I do a, a regular briefing for Senator Collins uh, and, uh, you know, uh, also for uh, our other senator in Maine. Um, and I think, they're, you know, they always take great interest in what we're doing. All right. And I think that uh, that's great. Right. But it has to be ongoing, consistent. And, you know, as well as I do, you know, that they're getting hit all the time with one thing or the other. You know, so uh, the reality here in all of this is that we've got to figure a way not only to educate our poor professionals, but to keep our legislators in the loop, our federal and certainly our state people. And, and again, you know, as we lead into 2024, this is a presidential election year. I'd love to hear from our, our hopefuls on how they're going to impact uh, maritime transportation. What, what's included in their policy um, and why should we vote for them? Um, it's, it's something that I'd like to, to see and hear more, I would like to hear more transportation related issues from those that are seeking congressional or even administrative positions. I'd love to sit in the audience and raise my hand and go like, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, uh, what do you think of this thing? Or what do you think of that? <laughs> Stuff like that. It, it I'll was, meet you uh, at the town hall. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where I need to be. It was kind of great. I sat down, uh, we did a briefing for Senator King after they passed the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Uh, and, you know, you, you spend, you, you plan, maybe if you're lucky, you get 20 minutes with a senator. We were with him for close to an hour. Uh, and that, and it's, you know, Maine is a maritime state, all right? And I think that our, our DOT understands maritime, 
right? Our senators understand maritime, our congressional delegation overall understands maritime. And that's, that's something that needs to be done across the board, right? Uh, I understand you're starting a, a, a program here in the future where you're going to be dealing with, you know, raising young children and helping them educate. That's what, that's what we need, right? We need to prepare the future generation because my generation is getting into fishing and hunting. And I was going to say, please don't say flatlined. <laughs> no, no, we're not flat. I'm not ready to flatline yet. But, you know, I think the bottom line is, is that with this great new generation of people coming up, as, and it's not just in our industry, I mean, it's, it's the operational people, the people who work in the rivers, work in the tugs, you know, work in the ships and stuff like that. These are all young people, all right? And it's the same aspect with our poor people. They need to be educated, but so do our staffs. So do our Agreed. Thank you so much, Captain, for your time, your friendship, and your camaraderie. Um, thank you to all of our listeners who have... Um, tuned in today and um, I do I do hope to meet some of you all at our basin meetings or in an IMPE class. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if there's something in particular that you'd like to hear um, and everyone thank you. Well can I say that uh, we need as ports as, as associations we need to stay engaged with our people. Try to do that in every opportunity you can. If you need some help or guidance Certainly, Amy does a great job with hers, and certainly we're helpful with our folks and stuff like that. So it is always a pleasure. It's a joy. And uh, we'll look forward to our next conversation. I'd love to chat about resiliency. I Me think it would be a great, great opportunity to talk six months before the, uh, before the first hurricane's hit. <laughs> so. Thank you, sir. All Thank right. You. Take care.